You're listening to Mr. Open Banking, the only podcast dedicated to exploring the open banking movement. Whether you're a financial expert, banking executive, or everyday consumer, open banking affects everyone and will change the way we interact with our money. I'm A.L. Savan, your host. This episode is brought to you by Radium, powering the world's most trusted data-sharing ecosystems. As we enter Season 4 of Mr. Open Banking, it is fair to say that the global economy is not in a happy place. As the cost of money increases, high inflation has now become the norm proving stickier than many expected. Liquidity crises have gripped the global banking sector, leading to failures and forced acquisitions. On March 9th, Silicon Valley Bank in the U.S. was subject to the fastest bank run in history, when in just a single day, a staggering $42 billion was withdrawn. The next day, they collapsed marking the third-largest bank crash in U.S. history. The contagion started to spread, not just to U.S. banks like Signature and First Republic, but to global banks. On March 15th, Credit Suisse shares collapsed, leading to an unprecedented takeover by rival UBS. Across the board, banks have been tightening their belts as they cope with a considerably tougher macroeconomic environment. As a consequence, budgets for abstract things like innovation have been slashed. Less R&D, fewer new products, reduced marketing spend. Fintechs and financial sector investors have started to feel the burn. These negative trends have led many in the open banking community to ask themselves some hard questions. Will banks turn away from data-sharing initiatives as they focus on inward efficiencies? Will governments lose their focus on consumer data rights as they wrangle with inflation? In short, is open banking dead? That's the question I asked our guest, who has enjoyed a front-row seat for the entire ride. Marie Walker has been studying and monitoring the progress of open, consent-driven data sharing since 2016, committing her career to thinking about where we are going, how best to get there, and what there could and should look like. Marie is highly regarded in the open data community. In 2016, she co-founded Open Future World, an open data news service which quickly emerged as one of the leading global sources of information on open banking, open finance, and beyond. Marie's work with Open Future World helped to build the robust community that drives the open data sector to this day. Through her current role as open futurist at Radium, she helps bring together the best people with the best ideas, facilitating the right conversations and promoting the benefits of open data for consumers, businesses, countries, and society at large. Marie, thank you for joining us. 
Thank you, Ail. That makes me sound really important. You're very kind. You've been studying open banking, open finance, and open data since 2016. How did you first discover open banking? We actually started a few years before 2016, but we weren't looking at open banking. We were looking at anything to do with digital transformation in finance. I founded the company with Nick Cabrera, who's also a big figure in this space. The thing that enabled us to find open banking was that we were completely topic enthusiasts. So we were always looking at what was emerging and we were talking to people who were actually doing the work. We were very early to spot that open banking was a thing and that it was coming. In 2016, in the UK, this was when open banking really started to become a thing, when we had the Competition and Markets Authority mandate that the biggest nine account-holding financial institutions had to implement open banking in a standardized way. So we created a conference for this. It was really early. It was not as well ascended as we would have liked, but we were the first people to do that and start bringing people together. And, And it all snowballed from there. How did you come up with the idea for Open Future World? What was the gap you were trying to fill? Initially, we simply wanted to create events to bring together all of the different stakeholders. So first of all, it was putting conferences on, and that was a commercial proposition for us. We, we got sponsors and paying delegates. But gradually over time, we increased our scope of what we did to include more market intelligence, putting together a daily news feed of what we think were the main interesting stories, highlighting for people what they ought to be paying attention to on a daily basis. It became a sort of research market intelligence events company. How did you see moods shift from those early years through to the 2020s? So in the very early years, the mood was very much, we need to do this. We've been mandated to do it. Also, we're paying for it. And there was a big compliance piece. Nobody had done this before. So if you think about the actual core infrastructure that enables open banking, that was built for this. There was no blueprint to follow. We definitely saw in the subsequent years were other interested parties looking at the UK's model and and trying to cherry pick the best ideas and create a blueprint to leapfrog more quickly ahead and avoid some of the pain points that the UK had. I think there's always been an enthusiasm for what open banking will be able to deliver. It's still relatively early stage. And of course, the big excitement comes when we start looking into open finance and smart data, which is what we're now approaching. We've always had a very enthusiastic fintech community who have been quick to adopt and innovate with this. We've had some banks who have been resistant. We've had some banks that have been incredibly forward thinking. I think we still see that. I think we still see that outside of the UK as well. We see it more broadly. The momentum has definitely been growing. And I think people can see the bigger picture of where we're trying to get to much more clearly now than at any other point. COVID helped with that a bit when we all had to suddenly stay at home and banks had to become completely digital. So 
there have been some unexpected incidents that have actually helped drive some of the digital transformation side as well. But I think we really have only scratched the surface of what this is going to become. Now, in late March of this year, much to the surprise of the community, Open Future World ceased trading. What happened? Yeah, that was a big shock to all of us. So when you are surfing a wave, so let's say that open banking, open finance was the wave, you want to be on it in order to benefit, in order to be able to drive the direction of the surfboard or whatever to use it to, to really hand this analogy up. And sometimes if you're on it, you can overdo it and you can fall over. But if you underdo it, then you'll miss it. So COVID for us was as an events business, that's primarily where we made our money. That was obviously disastrous because we didn't earn any revenue, but we used the time to really invest in our product and build the brand and also build the reach. We ended up with the audience covering 110 different countries into the many thousands. So coming out of COVID, we had a very good year last year. We had a very good year in terms of increased product, reputation, and revenue. We were profitable. So going into 2023, we were continuing to invest. We made a decision that we needed to continue to invest in staff, in marketing, as we were trying to continue riding that wave on the crest and driving it forward and solidifying the brand. That was against a background of increasingly slow marketing spend by fintechs as investors started to turn on the thumbscrews, for for want of a better word, on some of their investments to make sure that people were focusing on commercializing their propositions. So The market was slowing down and we were slightly exposed. But it's a risk that you have to take when you're running events because all of your costs are very early and upfront and your revenue is quite late. So it's a risk we were used to taking. What went wrong was Silicon Valley Bank collapsing, followed quickly by a couple of others, and then a week later by Credit Suisse, which rocked the banking world and our fintech markets to such an extent that our sales pipeline decided to pause completely or collapse, for want of a better word. Everybody put a break on spending and we couldn't see confidently when that was going to come back again, which in conjunction with some very large bills meant that we just simply didn't have enough cash. And unfortunately, if we had continued, we'd have been trading insolvently. So a very sad decision was made. Before we move on to exploring the macroeconomic trends that you describe. What stays with you the most from your experience running Open Future World? Oh, that's a difficult one. So many things. I think the overwhelming feeling I have is how enthusiastic everybody was and is about open consented data sharing. Yes, there's a lot of talk about what is or isn't going to take off, what can make money, what can't make money. But generally, there's this huge understanding and swell of enthusiasm for the data economy that's coming up. And it's an incredibly collaborative space. Very few people are not genuinely 
trying to progress this in an altruistic way. Yes, everybody has commercial propositions, but people want to see the market grow. And I love that collaborative, enthusiastic feel. And the fact that when you've looked at so many different examples, use cases, countries, companies, all of the things that they're doing that I've covered over the years, the breadth that this touches is quite extraordinary. Marie's relationship with open banking goes back to the early days, when European regulators were still debating PSD2 and the UK's CMA order was nothing but a twinkle in the eyes of intrepid regulators. In those days, most banks considered open banking to be something between a compliance exercise and a threat, forcing them to share data which was once rightfully theirs. Marie started Open Future World to help change their minds. By the 2020s, the tone had shifted substantially. Fear and suspicion had largely been replaced with tacit optimism as open banking adoption continued to show steady progress. Unique use cases began to arrive, delivered faster and cheaper than before, thanks to shared standards. But then, inflation struck. Interest rates rose, innovation spending vanished. Ultimately, like many others, Marie was forced to shut the doors on her open banking venture. Does this mean we are at the crest of the open banking wave? That's the question I asked Marie next. You mentioned a wave. Has the wave crested and we are now on the way down the other side? Absolutely not. Open banking is so early still. It's not everywhere in the world. It's not being used by everybody. It's very, very early stage. And I think people forget how early stage it is when we start looking at open finance and cross-sectorial data ecosystems and open X which is something I'm really interested in. I always give the example of the fact that if you look at mobile phones and how long it took from the technology being available to everybody having a mobile phone or contactless cards, that was a very slow burn. And now everybody pays by contactless. So as a technology, it's still really, really early. And it hasn't been implemented in a lot of countries, but it's a struggle to find a jurisdiction where this is not on their agenda. I think we are at the very earliest stages. One of the things that I would say to anybody that hasn't got a position on what your data can do for you, but crucially for your customers, then you are going to find it a very rude shock in a few years' time when people you hadn't even considered with business models you hadn't even considered suddenly jump up and take your market share, or you're at the very back of the pack. Everybody needs to have a position on this and an understanding of it, because this is the tip of the iceberg in terms of what's to come. So you wouldn't say your experience with Open Future World injected any pessimism into your outlook for open data? No, not at all. 
when you have an embryonic industry, if that industry has got some good ideas, it will attract a lot of enthusiasm and funding, which is what happened with the earliest of the TPPs, the fintechs. A lot of the good ideas were things around account aggregation. Account aggregation was such a good idea that everybody, all the users went, yes, of course, I want to see all my accounts in one place. And the banks thought, hey, we've got those customer relationships and we've got the data, so why don't we do it? So the fintechs who had that as their primary model were very quickly edged out by the banks. But that's not an example of a bad use case. That's an example of a great use case that was commoditized very quickly. So I think that the investors have put lots of money into this space and now they're looking to see what the execution strategy is and They're looking for agility and a constantly evolving business proposition. If you are a fintech who only does account aggregation, then you're going to be struggling to to look at where next. So I think it's the natural progression of the investors saying, okay, we've put a lot of money in. Where is this now going? We want you to demonstrate some results. It will build again. It's just a natural sort of slump and it's not helped by the economy. But the number of use cases that are coming in from other directions will naturally pull other sectors in as well. And we'll see a sort of swell of consented data sharing going forwards that will continue to drive both open banking and open finance and open X. Let's talk about that slump. It's no secret that global banking is experiencing some macroeconomic headwinds. Bank failures and consolidations continue to spread, albeit slowly. How do you see these negative trends influencing the direction of open data? I'm not a banking expert, but I think obviously when money stops being free or very cheap, then problems occur. In terms of influencing the future direction for consented data sharing, It's not a negative. If anything, it's a positive because we have to bring it back to what the benefit of data sharing is designed for, and that's to benefit the individual or the corporate client. It's to help people get the most appropriate products and services for their particular financial situation using their data and their data insights in order to recommend and provide and give access to those things. So when people are struggling... I think this is where a lot of the really exciting use cases for improved access to credit, more affordable, appropriate financial products, assistance to get onto the housing market, income smoothing business banking for gig economy workers and self-employed. This is where all of these things are incredibly important. Some of the governments around the world who are looking particularly at their small business sector and thinking, how can we support them to get access to finance? Because that's what we need in order for our economy to grow. That boosts open finance and data sharing up the agenda considerably because that's such an important imperative for a healthy economy. So I don't think it's a negative. It may mean that growth is slightly slower for the next two years, three years, but it's certainly not stopping. I'm certainly not seeing that from my new seat working with Radium. 
I can say with confidence that governments around the world are boosting this up their agenda. There's a difference between the health of individual banks and the health of the economy as a whole. You mentioned open banking and open data rising on the agenda of regulators. Given this economic turn, should we as practitioners be switching our focus from financial institutions to the regulators? I think we need to focus on both. What I'm very privileged to do is spend a huge amount of my time talking to people. I understand where people are at in their strategic planning cycles and what they're looking at. That includes a large number of financial institutions, but also fintechs, technology companies, and other sectors, utilities, telcos. But on the banking side, I haven't seen any slowdown in terms of what they are strategizing and preparing for. I have yet to find a bank that isn't currently preparing their plans for the next two, three years with regard to open banking, open finance, and open data generally. Most banks recognize that you have to prepare now in order to be ready when the market particularly takes off. And you have to understand what it is that your customers are going to be asking for so that you can partner with the right individuals. All of these propositions, partnerships, all of the work you need to do with the technology, the APIs, exposing them, sharing them, sandboxes, all of that takes time. You have to not gamble, but you have to take a judgment on where you want to sit in the new data economy. The data economy is the future. If you don't have plans for that data economy, then you're going to be playing catch up and you probably will have lost the opportunity to be a dominant player. It's a situation where if you wait for everything to become obvious, if you wait for the demand to suddenly increase, if you wait for the investment appetite to be back, if you wait for the governments to provide additional regulatory support, then you will probably not be best placed in order to take advantage of that compared to some other companies, competitors who might have speculated that this is all coming and uh, they need to prepare early as possible. Let me pick on a seeming contradiction. You said that even now you're seeing most banks continue to invest in open banking as at least a form of readiness. But you also said that some banks continue to resist. Certainly, those resistors are going to feel validated by the economic climate. Why are they continuing to resist? And are they going to spoil the pot for the rest of us? So in terms of resistance, we've definitely seen banks be resistant. I've spoken to some of them who have freely admitted to me in private that their APIs are conformant but poor, and they have no interest or desire to improve them, almost proud of the fact. And I think the motivation behind those banks is that they haven't got to grips with the idea that sharing data creates value. They haven't seen value being created for themselves. And they haven't done enough to create value for their customers. So they just see it as a regulatory burden and a cost. 
and they don't see themselves getting anything back. I think we will see those banks come around from that idea. And I think some of them will get a rude shock in the years to come if they don't. A lot of the banks have been very forward thinking. They are all looking at how they should benchmark themselves as well, because there's a realization that the industry, the financial services sector and banking sector is changing. It may not be a bank or a financial services company that you are competing against in five years' time. One of the classic data sharing ecosystem examples is Uber. So Uber has transformed how you take a taxi. And that's basically the driver agreeing to share his location data with me, the passenger, the passenger, me, providing my location data to the driver, Google Maps API, and an embedded payment system. Nobody mandated in the transport sector that data sharing ought to occur. Somebody just invented it. We don't know where next in terms of the big industry changes, the big industry innovators. So whilst you do get some resistance from some of the incumbent banks, I think the majority are very much looking at this as an opportunity. And when we see the banks starting to receive some benefits beyond the additional products and services and market share that they can acquire, such as when they receive a financial benefit from sharing their data, being part of an ecosystem, or simply the efficiencies that they have from being able to actually understand what data they hold and be able to create products and services from it internally, let alone externally. This is all being enabled, this is all being improved by the systems that are being put in place, then I think we'll overcome a lot of the hesitancy. I don't think the hesitancy will drag down the enthusiasts. It's always good to have a measure of both because it creates arguments which will then help to temper the enthusiasm with an injection of realism and within that bring out some of the commercial opportunities. It's almost necessary for ecosystem growth But the waiting, I think, is very much in favour of the enthusiasts. The open banking journey has been a rocky road. Marie has seen that firsthand and has experienced it on a deeply personal level. Nevertheless, she remains optimistic. From her perspective, we are still at the very beginning of something much, much larger than the current economic cycle. In fact, she argues that the headwinds are a positive because they force banks and investors to focus on creating real value. Rather than chasing the next shiny object, we must instead return to the root of open banking, helping the customer do more with their money. On the regulatory side, governments continue to keep open banking high on their agenda. More often than not, they have begun to recognize the economic benefits of having a trusted data-sharing ecosystem and the national infrastructure to support it. That is where open banking sits today, at a crossroads, trying to strike a balance between the benefits to consumers and the benefits to the banks themselves. But, as we've often discussed 
on the show. One of the great things about open banking is that it's a win-win. That's where Marie and I go next. Would you say some banks still see this as a zero-sum game, so it's either benefiting consumers or it's benefiting them? Or are they starting to see this as more of a win-win? It's a very difficult one to answer because I'm not sure many people have consciously had those deep soul-searching conversations with themselves. I have some brilliant conversations with Liz Brandt of Control Shift, who is the niche consultancy that is absolutely front and centre of personal data mobility and portability. Her focus on it being the consumer's data is beyond any conversations I have in open banking and open finance. But ultimately, this is where we're going. So I think there are degrees of understanding and there's degrees of focus. I think banks or any institution that holds a large amount of data about their customers generally still feels that is an asset of theirs. They may also be thinking genuinely, how can we help our customers with this? But there's probably still two conversations going on. Where we will get to ultimately is that the consumer or the owner of the data, the individual or the corporate client, will have a lot more control over it. And that will transcend companies and sectors and will be a holistic benefit for their life. I think we're quite a way off with that in the banking sector at the moment, but the banks that are looking at it as the customer's data and how can they best serve the customer, those are the ones who will be keeping closest to what the customer wants. What's going to deliver value for them? How can it be funded? How can we make life as easy as possible for our customers? But of course, you have to make money out of it as well, otherwise it's not sustainable. So The commercial side of making money out of data sharing, it's not a dirty subject. It's absolutely necessary that we understand how this is all going to be funded and paid for. But the people who put the customer first are going to be the ones that will genuinely deliver the products and services that are needed. And they are the people who we expect would get the greatest share of the market. So you see it as a win-win? Yeah, I do. And it's also inevitable. I didn't have email. I didn't have a mobile phone until I was at university. If I explain that to my sons, they think I'm a dinosaur. When it comes to them explaining to their children, my grandchildren in the future, that there was a time when people didn't own and control their own data, they will think the same thing. You were one of the first to shift your focus from open banking to open finance to open data. In that context, you've often spoken about the ecosystems that exist within the open data ecosystem at large, ecosystems within ecosystems. Can you elaborate on this idea? Banking isn't special. Banking is just first. And the reason why banking was chosen is it has a lot of data and it's heavily regulated And when it comes to sharing data, you need the absolute highest levels of security. And banking is the pinnacle of secure things. Open finance is when it becomes more interesting because you have more than just payments accounts. You have 
mortgages, wealth, insurance, and so forth. But your life and your data doesn't stop there. Data is basically into every single aspect of our life. It's not a surprise that people are already starting to look at what we can do if we connect data from different areas. So for example, house buying. So the home buying and selling group in the UK is an industry voluntary collective that's looking at how we can improve house buying. So house buying, as we all know, is very frustrating. It has a lot of front-loaded costs. So there's lots of ways in which we can smooth and streamline and reduce costs and improve efficiency in house buying. So we're seeing ecosystems emerge in that. Radium who I'm now working with, provide the core infrastructure that enables data sharing securely and with confidence. And they are providing that service to Open Net Zero, for example, which is looking at providing utility and other data points to small businesses so that they can understand how they can reduce their carbon footprint. And the companies that supply those small businesses can understand which small businesses are taking those steps and how they can reward them to go further. And Radium provides a solution to enable this data to be shared in a trusted fashion, regardless of what data it is or what sector it's being shared from. Is that right? Yeah. So basically, Radium has what they call a trust framework, and that ensures that anybody who sits on the resulting platform where you can find the APIs that you want to call on in order to receive the data that you want to receive in order to offer a particular product or service. Anybody on that platform, you need to be able to trust that they have the right to be there and that they're conforming with all of the correct standards, they're complying with everything they need to comply with, and the security is the highest level. The trust framework basically onboards all of those different entities onto that platform where platform players can then see each other and share the data. So that basically underpins open banking in the UK, in Brazil, and open insurance in Brazil, and all the major initiatives around the world. It's about making the data sharing ecosystem work. And that data ecosystem can be at a whole country level, like the UK, It can be for a consortium, for example, the major banks in Australia with an identity verification scheme called Connect ID, or it can be for an individual company. And I think the opportunity for an individual company, like a bank, would be to use something like this to bring together all of the data sources from around your organization, particularly if you're a multinational or you've grown through acquisition, you might have siloed data in all sorts of different pots to understand what you've got and to create a platform that then allows you to experiment and go in any direction in the data economy with or without partners. I think that's a really interesting piece of technology. It's an enabler. Since joining Radium as their resident open futurist, you've started a new news service called Open Conversations. Is this a continuation of the work you started with Open Future World, or is it different somehow? So Open Conversations is a continuation of me sharing what I think is interesting. So for the last four or five years, I've been sharing news articles, podcasts, videos, white papers, 
etc. News launches, raises, anything that I find interesting that I think is progressing, open banking, open finance and open X. It's not so much a newsletter as an amalgamation of what I think is worth paying attention to. And I try to put in a few words in every headline just to give you an indication of why you should read this one. It's free. It's a resource. And you do this every single day. Yeah, there's so much information. So I don't share everything. It's more of a snapshot. It's my opinion of what I found interesting on a daily basis, but hopefully that saves some people time and gives them early insight into some stuff they might not have come across. Based on your daily analysis, what would you say to the skeptics out there that look at the belt tightening surrounding a high interest rate environment where inflation is running rampant, who might think open banking is dead. There's no room for investment in this kind of thing anymore. What would your answer be? My answer would be categorically that they're wrong. Belt tightening is one thing, but that doesn't stop people strategizing and having ambitions. And there's a huge amount of value in partnering people in this space. There's a huge amount of value, even if you are not ready to, you should at least be exploring in a sandbox what you could be doing and with whom. The financial markets, you know, historically are always up and down. We never know what the next global macroeconomic shock might be or opportunity. Yes, you have to be prudent. You know, one of the pieces of advice that I was given by somebody who invests regularly is that investors don't want to see a proof of concept. They want to know what your execution strategy is going to be. They want to know how you're going to get to market, who your distributors are going to be, and the real nuts and bolts of the on-ramp to you earning some money. So yes, there's going to be higher scrutiny, but the idea that something as big as this future data economy is going to be derailed by market conditions at the moment is simply not the case. Marie, where can our guests find out more about you and your work with Radium? Well, you can go on to LinkedIn, which is where I spend a lot of my life sharing insights on open conversations. I'm always really happy to talk to anybody that's interested in open consented data sharing. So if I can help at all, please do reach out. In terms of Radium, radium radium.com is the website. If you're a bank or a large organization or a government that wants to understand what data sharing ecosystem could look like, then be delighted to talk to you. It's been great to have you on the show, Marie. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Elle. It's been an absolute pleasure. There is little doubt that the era of perpetually low interest rates has come to an end. Money is now a lot more expensive than it used to be. This means banks will spend less, investors will invest less, and fintech pioneers will invent less. Governments have moved in lockstep to curb inflation. CEOs the world over debate whether the landing will be soft or hard. Nervousness prevails. It is quite fair, then, to ask 
what this will mean for open banking, open finance, and open data. Will the data-sharing initiatives that have arisen all over the world be shelved and forgotten? Marie says no. To borrow her words, banking isn't special. It's just first. The shared standards that underpin open banking continue to improve and grow. These standards continue to help banks and fintechs share customer data with their consent in the most trusted and secure way possible. Governments continue to see the benefits of leveraging these standards to better help their citizens, even more so in these uncertain times. To a large extent, open banking has proven itself immune to the current economic climate, at least so far. That's because, as Marie says, open banking is about something much larger than just banking. It aims to change how we think of data sharing as a whole. And it aims to build the foundation for how we will all share data well into the future. Despite these uncertain times, there remains cause for optimism. Things like decarbonization and generalized AI offer a glimpse of what lies over the horizon. Consent-driven data sharing will inevitably be part of that vision. Although no one seems to know quite where the economic winds are blowing these days, one thing is for certain. Open banking is alive and well. Thanks for listening to Mr. Open Banking, the podcast that explores the ongoing evolution of open banking and its impact on our lives. Make no mistake, the rise of open banking is going to change financial services forever, and we will be covering that story every step of the way. This is your host, A.L. Savan. Until next time. This episode of Mr. Open Banking was made possible by Radium, powering the world's most trusted data-sharing ecosystems. To learn more, visit radium.com.